2: i control both auto-decentage
1: command override
3: off, and then I'm We're off. We're home. <laughs> 413 is in.
2: Man on the moon. We copy you
3: down,
2: Eagle. Listen uh... Oh, jeez. Tranquility base here. The Eagle has landed.
4: The day before we flew to the East Coast it was the day that they landed on the moon.
2: DCO radio time is 2.50 two, with Steve Rowan in the and CBS News Space Headquarters in New York. where We are following the history-making a flight a of Apollo 11. Gold spacecraft M- now the behind M- the moon. It all has gone as planned. Eagle, the Lamb, Armstrong, golden inside, has performed its de insertion
4: burn. So our celebration was called Gank Day. Wow. There they sit on the moon. Which was, I assume, the sound that we made when we landed on the moon. Gong.
2: Good day from ABC Space Headquarters in New York. It is July 20th, 1969, and man is about to land on the moon. Gonk. And so we had everything was gunk.
0: Welcome to American Prankster, the rivetingly incredible, historically fascinating life story of wavy gravy, original beatnik, hippie icon, comedy pioneer, and pioneering activist who uses humor as a weapon.
4: We had the Queen of Gonk Day and we had Gonk Aid, which was a beverage that you don't want to have more than one of. <laughs> And the, all kinds of various gunk
0: things. I'm producer Rainbow Valentine, and in this episode, Hugh Romney and the Hog Farm Commune makes a leap from underground band of alternative performance art hippie culture makers to global symbols of peace, love, and rock and roll.
3: That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind.
4: The next day... 85 of us and 15 Native Americans flew from Albuquerque to uh, Kennedy Airport, where uh, we were swooped up and taken to White Lake or Bethel, depending on who you're talking to, for this music festival. And it was amazing. Did we
2: bring the pig? I don't think we brought the pig on this one. <laughs> A rock music festival that drew hundreds of thousands of young people to a dairy farm in White Lake, New York, over the weekend, came to an end today. And we have a report from Richard O'Brien. They listened for three days, and today they sounded the retreat and headed for home. The sponsors said it was going to be three days of peace and music. It was that all right, and much more.
0: The Woodstock Peace and Music Festival in August 1969 was 3 days of rock and roll in upstate New York.
3: This just...
0: The Woodstock lineup is a mind-blowing list of icons, including Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, The Grateful Dead, Joan Baez, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, Santana, Creedence, Clearwater, Revival, The Who, The Jefferson Airplane. The list goes on.
1: We'd like
5: to do a Steven Stills song, one of the best I think ever is called Helplessly Hoping. Helplessly Hoping Her Helicopter Hovers Nearby. Helplessly Hoping Her.
0: Almost the end of an unbelievably metamorphic decade for humans, which included the crux of America's civil rights movement, the Vietnam War, and the global explosion of technology like home televisions, early computers, and space travel.
2: Now, at this history-making moment in which man has first landed on the moon, we are entering a new era.
0: Inventions in the 1960s include astroturf communication satellites, the music synthesizer, soft contact lenses, the heart transplant, and the home microwave oven. The kitchen,
2: with its reliance on modern frozen foods and microwave and quartz cooking units, is in the forefront of a new era. Microwave cooking units are indeed revolutionary.
0: And along with these new things came a massive cultural shift connected to the emergence of LSD, the birth control pill, and the evolution of protest music from folk to rock. The trinity of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. The Woodstock Festival producers marketed the event throughout the country, yet everyone was surprised when it was flooded with hundreds of thousands of youthful hippies from around the country, plus an actual flood of intense rain.
2: The big problem was that no one, no one had even the slightest notion that they would come in such numbers.
0: Woodstock is a unicorn. A rare and unique moment in music, American, and global history. And we're going to unpack why with Wavy and Friends. Because that event turned him into a hippie icon. A global symbol for peace, love, and rock and roll. How did that happen? And why? And why does Woodstock still matter today?
2: So many people were smoking pot, the police explained. There were not enough jails to hold them. A situation to remind an older generation of conditions 35 years ago under which alcohol was legalized.
0: Welcome to the Unicorn episode, Woodstock.
2: We're moving along down the
4: road of peace that passeth understanding. And I was on the way between one college and another. Hi there. My name is Hugh Romney. What is
5: essentially on the front of my brain is this uh, hog farm poster, which uh, we're going to be moving all around the country, we being uh, a commune.
0: That's a promo from Young Wavy for the touring college shows he and the hog farm were taking around the country. We talked about them in the last episode. And
4: we get this call from Stan Goldstein, who was working with Michael Lang in this music festival called Woodstock. They asked
2: us if we would like to be involved and we said absolutely. What happened at White Lake this weekend may have been more than an uncontrolled outpouring of hip young people, struggling as they did to survive, first the 20-mile traffic jams and five-mile hikes, then the intense heat and sudden rain, the thirst and hunger from the shortage of water and food, just for the opportunity to spend a few days in the country getting stoned on their drugs and grooving on the music. Now,
4: i had already been sounded on this back when we were in New York City around a big kitchen table just doing our stuff, and Stan Goldstein comes in. We'd never seen him before. He looked like Dick Gregory. He had an Allen Ginsberg diet, and he asked us uh, how we'd like to do this music festival in New York State, and we said, well, uh, we're going to be on the road, probably in Wyoming. And he said, that's all right. We'll fly you in in an Astrojet. And we figured he was one toke over the line and paid no attention.
0: Stan Goldstein was the Woodstock Festival Chief of Staff. But to me, he was the Camp Winner Rainbow Tech guru and later one of my L.A. dads. Stan was a jovial, Jewish, Santa Clausy guy who knew how to get shit done. He died in 2014. Now, while I was editing this episode, Stan's son and I synchronistically connected on social media. And Stan's son, who also went to Camp a Rainbow, sent me this recorded conversation with Stan Goldstein, explaining his role at Woodstock.
3: I was on my way to California when this call came from Michael Lang, who wanted to do this festival. I don't want to do a festival, thank you very much. Um, you know, but, well, but Stan, what we're going to do is we're going to build a studio in Woodstock, and the festival is the intro to this. And so if you help me put this together, you get to build the studio. And so I agreed to help organize this show and design the show. And then I was going to hang in Woodstock and put build the studio. Well, I wound up basically doing most of the staffing. I didn't have the authority really to do all the hiring, but Everyone I recommended got the jobs I recommended them for. <laughs> I brought in all of the people and organized it. But in doing that, because I was going to go build the studio, I gave away all the jobs that I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> so I was variously chief of staff. Um, and on the private organization charts, I had two titles. Um, I was chief of staff and holy ghost. Yes, yes, I was the holy ghost of, uh, of Woodstock. And officially in the program, I was the director of campgrounds. <laughs>
0: so, Stan, integral to Woodstock and known as the Holy Ghost of Woodstock, was familiar with Wavy and the Hog Farms college shows, and he hired them for the festival.
4: Suddenly, there was Stan with our plane tickets. East or west, north or south. Isn't America wonderful? What could we do but get on an airplane and fly to Kennedy?
0: I just watched some video of you guys landing at the airport. Yeah, yeah.
4: The world press swooped on us when we landed. And they're questioning me, uh, what am I going to do? What am I going to use for crowd control? And I said, uh, cream pies and seltzer bottles. And they actually all wrote it down. And I thought, the power of
2: manipulating the media. Ha ha.
4: We just babbled.
2: <laughs> what is the hog farm going to be doing in Woodstock? Well, uh, the hog farm is the many-sided, uh,
5: multi... Uh, we're uh, kind of a family, a huge, expanded family.
0: That's young lady.
5: And we could do any number of things, because each one of us is going to do a different thing. But mostly, we're just going to try and be groovy and uh, spread that grooviness to everybody. Mm-hmm.
4: And they said, oh, my God, the hog farm, you guys are going to be the uh, security. I said, my God, they made us the cops. I said, are you kidding? Do you feel secure? The guy said, well, yeah. I said, well, see, it's working.
2: Well, the hog farm has been hassled by security people, and they're calling you security people. So how do you feel about the, you
6: know,
2: the name? Well, I feel secure. I don't know
5: what security people means. I never was called a security person before. In fact, you're the first person that's ever called me that. How do you feel? Mm. Well, I feel... You feel scared?
4: (laughs) We're looking to get out of there, and the best way to get out of there is to babble along and then look for an exit, (laughs) which we did. We evaporated. They loaded us into these buses that weren't ours and drove us out to the site where we had had an advance crew go on ahead And they had had clear land, and then we got judges' orders to. We couldn't do it there, so we had to leave and go to another place, and then we'd clear land and make more money. So
0: there were all sorts of location permit issues. Until finally,
4: we ended up on Max Yasgar's farm in upstate New York.
0: Eventually, the event landed on Max Yasgar's 600-acre dairy farm.
4: At White Lake or Bethel, depending on who you're talking to.
0: The child of Russian Jewish immigrants, Max Yasgar was the largest milk supplier in the region and a conservative who supported the Vietnam War which was the antithesis of the concert and its attendees. Now, one of the reasons Woodstock became iconic is because Republicans like Maxi Asgar were charmed by the kids and their peace-loving behavior. Here's Maxi Asgar addressing the massive crowd at Woodstock. I'm
2: a farmer. I don't know how to speak to 20 people at one time, let alone a crowd like this. But I think you people have proven something to the world. We have had no idea that there would be this size group and because of that you had quite a few inconveniences as far as water and food and so forth. The important thing that you've proven to the world is that a half a million kids can get together and have three days of fun and music and have nothing but fun and music and I got pleasure for it.
4: And we had an advanced crew that built a little geodesic kitchen. And what we were about to do was all these various tables to be able to feed hundreds and hundreds of people that didn't have any resources to buy the various hamburgers and stuff that they were selling. So we hooked them up, beginning with granola.
0: Granola became synonymous with hippies at Woodstock, a unicorn moment. But before we dive into granola, here's Wavy's wife, Jahanara, on landing at Woodstock.
7: We went to Woodstock and we set ourselves up. I think we made, Wavy and I made ourselves a tent out of, in case there was rain, there was a lot of plastic. So we made us a little lean-to with plastic. And then there was dome that we carried and we put up the dome that became a free kitchen. And there was, you know, several thousand, maybe 20, 30,000 people were expected. So we were, you know, really ready for a crowd. We were not ready for a half a million people. I mean, we were feeding thousands of people. And the thing about it is that nobody could get in or out unless they abandoned their cars on the freeway and walked in. And so everybody had, like, really taken a big risk to actually get in. You just left, left it all there, whatever you could carry, and walked over the fences which were either never up or you just walked over them because they were all flat on the ground. And so the people who were there had all risked something to get there.
2: What happened at White Lake was that hundreds of thousands of kids invaded a rural resort area totally unprepared to accommodate them among adults who resent and reject their youthful style of life. And that somehow... By nature of old-fashioned kindness and caring, both groups came together in harmony and good humor, and all of them
6: learned from the experience.
0: I wanted a historic perspective, so I called Dennis McNally, historian, author, and former publicist of The Grateful Dead.
6: Rock and roll becomes an increasingly interesting and well-done and popular uh, art form, all of which sort of more or less accidentally emerges in perfect form in Bethel, New York, in August of 1969. Now, a lot of the the notion that this was he- you know heaven on earth or to quote Wavy Gravy, there's always a little bit of heaven in, in a disaster area. There's
5: always a little bit of heaven in a disaster area.
6: There was a certain amount of stress, namely a lot of rain and a lot of, you know, too many people. And-
2: Estimates of the crowd ranged up to more than 300,000. And it was that size that caused most of the trouble. That and the rainstorms that turned the big dairy meadow into a
6: mud farm. It was on one level a mess. And the fact is that wasn't that big a mess. But the the audience, rather than get cranky or violent or weird, said, oh, well, you know, it's okay. it's messy. There you go. Music's good. Let's listen.
5: Blackbird singing in the dead of night.
6: People went wild. At first, the first reaction was, oh, well, you know, how, how terrible and what a mess.
2: As one official pointed out, with
6: 300,000
2: people, you are not dealing with just a crowd, but virtually a city.
6: Literally, the, you know, Woodstock shut down the New York State threw away. okay? There was a sudden influx of young people from all directions, but, you know, nothing bad happened.
2: For adults who were there, it was a revelation in human understanding. They had not been aware, as the kids are, of the gentle nature of young people to one another. These long-haired, mostly white kids in their blue jeans and sandals were no wide-eyed anarchists looking for trouble.
6: I might add that the same sort of thing had happened two years before at the Monterey Pop Festival, where you had thousands more people than could fit into the actual musical performance space. But nothing. These were people there to have fun. If they didn't have a ticket, oh, stay outside and listen to what they could listen to. Same thing happened at Woodstock. Actually, what happened at Woodstock was that they got to like the day before the show was supposed to start and there were already 50,000 people sitting in front of the stage waiting for things to start. And uh, the ticketing people showed up and said, OK, you have to clear the area so we can start collecting tickets. I believe it was Wavy and maybe Babs and some of the other hippies that were there said, because by then it was obvious, A, that many more people than had tickets were gonna show up, and B, that if there was gonna be any economic reality to uh, Woodstock, that it was gonna be from the movie. They had sold movie rights and there were movie cameras there. And as, uh, I think it was wavy, that to the, la- to the ticket people, you want a good movie or you want a bad movie? Which is to say, if they tried to clear all those people, forget it, it was not, you know. And, and because the, Michael Lang and the other people that were in charge at the moment, you know, were sane, they went, forget about it, it's a free concert. It all worked out just fine.
2: The residents of the area, learning of the emergency, began to respond.
6: Housewives
2: handed out hot coffee to stranded youngsters who had not eaten in days. Catholic nuns passed around sandwiches made by Jewish mothers. And the police invoked the law of practicality and allowed the kids the
6: freedom to take their drugs in public. It became enshrined in American culture as this magical moment, and and perhaps it was not Turning into a a maniac because you're getting rained on does not strike me as maybe, you know, the ultimate in human development, but it was a good, it was a good scene. And, you know, and it was, as I say, there's a certain amount of exaggeration going on that, you know, people cherish, but there's Woodstock and it's enshrined as this absolutely magical moment that, that there is a new culture.
2: What was learned at White Lake was not that hundreds of thousands of people can paralyze an area and break the law, but that, in an emergency at least, people of all ages are capable of compassion. And while such a spectacle may never happen again, it has recorded the growing proportions of this youthful culture in the mind of adult America. Every morning
4: we would show up in the field and there were all these different tasks and people would volunteer for various tasks of carpentry and what have you. And I was walking across the terrain with Tom Law when I was spotted by E.H. Beresford Monk, otherwise known as Chip Monk, and he built the stage at Woodstock. So there I was and Chip said, You come up here. And he knew I could get on a microphone and say hospital. And people wouldn't break their legs, but they would know it was a place they could go to have their legs fixed if they happened to break
0: them. So Chipmunk, a techie at New York City clubs, knew Hugh Romney from his stand-up career and entrusted him with a Woodstock microphone.
4: I came up on the stage and I was given a microphone to make announcements. I never introduced a band like, and now the Rolling Stones. No, I didn't do that. Chip did all that, and his voice was like Nelton Hershey bar being poured in your ear. He had this great,
2: magical voice. Those of you who have sleeping bags on this tower that can get to them, would you be kind enough as to take them down, put them underneath, or roll them up in the bottom corner so that those behind those bags can see, please? And what I did was just
4: make Mary meet Freddy at the information booth Her dentist is trying to reach her, that kind of stuff. Life support announcements was what I did. We must be in heaven, man!
0: And heaven, it was for hippies. One of Wavy and the hog farm's tasks was to act as festival security. Here's what Wavy did.
4: It was the police force. Instead of the police force, we had the police force. I kind of thought that up.
2: Everywhere you go, your manners are with you. And they leave their mark. And they make an impression on people, on everyone you meet.
7: There is a pleasant, well-mannered group of young people, not
4: like some. Tom and I were the Jesus at Woodstock, the police force. Did I was, you uh, um,
0: ever break up any fights or act as a security? Oh,
4: God, there was only one fight in the entire three days, these two... Uh, Texans were gonna duke it out and what three hundred thousand people said peace and they just about pooped in their pants and they shook hands and everybody went yeah i cheered and that was it that was the only violence that i think i saw big we're scared to get violent after that you better not get
2: violent or we'll beat the shit out of you despite the overt appeals for violence by the few political radicals among the crowd they remained polite passive and finally as the area was saturated helpless We had a a bulletin board
4: that I had made with a hole in it. So there were all this stuff on the bulletin board, but if you stuck your head through the hole, you could make a live announcement. And I stuck my head through the hole to announce a baby race and who was there But Max Yazger and his family, he said, you kids are really nice. You just want peace and love and music. And he was deeply touched. And his family came to the baby race. And we had like crawlers and walkers and uh, runners. (laughs) And it was gorgeous. And Max Yazger fell in love with us. And every morning, he would send over this enormous vessel of the most delicious yogurt you ever tasted in all your born days. Thanks, Max.
2: Yes, your manners are showing all day long.
0: Max sold his iconic farm a few years after Woodstock in 1971, retired to Florida, and died in 1973.
4: My moment of truth, of course, was that I got on the microphone and I said, What
5: we have in mind is breakfast in bed for 400000 Now, it's not going to be steak and eggs or anything, but it's going to be good food, and we're going to get it to you.
4: And it's not going to be steak and eggs either, blah, 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 etc. That whole pile of verbiage was picked by Entertainment Weekly as one of the top entertainment lines. Of the 20th century. I am not making this up. It's absolutely true.
5: It's not just the hog farm either. It's like the Ohio Mountain family and the pranksters and everybody else that has volunteered and put in their time into the free kitchens. In fact, it's everybody. We're all feeding each other.
4: Which is when we introduced hippies to granola they had never seen granola before so what is this shit gravel no taste it it's good and they did and they liked it and the granola manufacturers of the world owe us an enormous debt for feeding them granola
7: back to mrs great who knows who invented granola but i'd never heard of it and it didn't have a name and and we were familiar with muesli
0: which is just basically granola without being toasted Form of granola called granula was developed in 1863 by Dr. Caleb Jackson, a vegetarian who named his snack after the granules of gram flour in the recipe. Soon after, Dr. John Kellogg of the famed Kellogg cereals copied granola but used oats instead of gram flour and called his product granola. granola and hippies became forever linked because that's what they ate at Woodstock, fed to them by the hog farm. Granola, hippies and granola, granola and
4: hippies. Mrs. Gravy was very involved in the the granola production along with Lisa Law. They actually went into New York City and bought Pots and pans and various and sundry uh, stuff.
0: I called Lisa Law for more details on this momentous event in food and hippie history. Lisa Law is a photographer whose counterculture pictures are known throughout the world. At the time of Woodstock, Lisa was married to Wavy's pal, Tom Law, brother of John Law, Wavy's friend from theater school, who got the hog farm into the movie Skidoo. Here's Lisa Law. We had a
8: group called the Juke Savages, but we were guides for the hog farm always. So I'm a special member of the hog farm. We got there and we uh, were setting up our teepees and uh, we had a little meeting about feeding people. And uh, they were gonna scrounge around for pots and pans. They brought some of their own. And I said, you know, we can't just do it like this off the cuff. We've got to get money from the producers. So I went into one of the trailers, I said, I'm with the hog farm and I need $3,000 to go buy a bunch of food and supplies, uh, cooking utensils and stuff. And he said, well, okay. Oh, okay. And he handed me $3,000. Peter White Rabbit and I got a truck from the producers and drove into New York and went to Greenblatt's and we bought 1,200 pounds of bulgur wheat, 1,200 pounds of rolled oats,
0: currants, dried apricots, almonds, honey. Ah, the recipe for original Woodstock granola, hippie's first granola. Brewer's yeast, soy sauce, Yeah. That's what we got. And lots of it. It's the 60s. So, of course, the women were heading up the kitchen. Here's Wavy's wife, Jahanara, on this significant moment in food history. I think
7: that Lisa Law, there were a few people who worked on the kitchen, and I was one of the main ones. And so Lisa is the one I remember saying, we have to have this certain kind. We will get bulgur wheat because it cooks fast. And we will get oats because we can make muesli. And then she said, but we could toast it. And, it, you know, it it's probably Lisa, who is the one that got us to toast oats. Back to Lisa Law. The next day, I needed pots and pans and
8: bowls and plastic garbage pails for mixing things in, onion cutters, cleavers, and big stainless steel pots. So I went into the office there, and I said, I need another $3,000. And they called John, and they said, well, she wants $3,000. And he says, give it to her. And I got it, and I was able to purchase all the things we needed for cooking. Then Peter and I drove back, picked up a bunch of hitchhikers on the way, and that's when a lot of people started coming and we realized that it was going to be bigger than we
0: thought back to Johanara.
7: then we fed thousands of people until we were so overwhelmed with people that we couldn't begin to do it and we began serving muesli with raisins and we at the end of Woodstock we weren't toasting the oat because there was no time and we were serving raw oats with powdered milk and water and we had some sort of sweetener and, and we we had raisins. Someone would be serving and there would be a line a half a mile long and I would then just go down the line and scoop water into their bowl so they didn't have to wait in line to everybody get up. You know if you got your bowl then you could leave and the line got shorter. Oh God, it was so hard. We were cooking brown rice at first but then we started doing bulgur wheat because it would cook in like 20, 15, 20 minutes and then we couldn't steam vegetables anymore. And so we were, you know, cooking bulgur wheat and putting raw vegetables on top of them with soy sauce, (laughs) whatever we could do to feed all the people. So it started out being this beautiful steamed vegetable and Brown rice and soy sauce, and lovely a breakfast with granola and fruits, and and ended up being
1: feed the people.
0: <laughs> Here's hog farmer Mary Prankster, Laura Foster Corbin, who was part of the hog farm advance crew for Woodstock.
1: There was an advanced group. We took a bus called the Road Hog. So. There were maybe 12 of us that were on the bus, and we went several weeks ahead of time. and we helped make some signs for the information desk and I helped go purchase food for the free kitchen and all that kind of stuff. So we helped get ready. We were there when all these people showed up, more people, more people. And I also remember making pancakes for like a long line of people. We just kept making pancakes and making pancakes and making pancakes. I don't think we invented granola. I think we rather dispersed granola. Pancakes were involved. Granola was involved. Back to Lisa Law. Everybody helped everybody else. And
8: on the stage, people were told, help your neighbor. And Joan Baez says, be good to your neighbor. And Tom Law got up there and said, you could go eat at the hog farm over there. And, you know, I didn't have to cook anything after the first day. In fact, once I delivered the food, the kids in that area volunteered and Johanna Ra uh, was overseeing it and I took off with my camera and the kids took over, put their aprons on and, and, and started cooking. Two, we figured we cooked 200,000 meals. They had five food lines. With two sides to each one, so there were 10 food lines. Back to Jahanara.
7: We kept deputizing people, you know, and say, okay, you're on, you're doing okay, okay, and we we made up a bunch of armbands and um, said, okay, you are now one of the workers. And after a while, uh, we didn't need to be in the kitchen anymore, and where they needed help was the... I guess we called it the freak out tent.
5: Uh, My name is Hugh Romney. I'm with a hog farm and I'm working uh, on, on a scene. Some people call it bum trips. I don't think there's such a thing as a bum trip. We have handled over 300
4: and everybody's worked out all right. Tell me about the freak out tent at Woodstock okay, you've done your homework. That was uh, one of our tasks with people that were having uh, difficulty dealing with their psychotropic inhalation. In other words, they couldn't handle their drugs. And so we established a venue. For these people to go to where they could be uh, into a more mellow situation than having the universe attack them because they were too stoned to deal with anything. We probably thought it up first at Woodstock and it started out as a teepee but eventually the the teepee got chock full and so we had to segue from the teepee to a large circus tent right next to the medical tent so we could always run to the doctors to get Thorazine if we had to. But we always tried not to.
0: Thorazine, also called chlorpromazine, is the first antipsychotic medication and was developed in the 1950s. It reduces hallucinations and aggressive behavior.
4: I remember when the first freakout came into the freakout tent and he's going, Bob or Jim or, or Waldo or something, literally. <laughs> This guy flipped out, so I said, Okay, go down there, and yes, I'll be there in a minute. And introduce you to Hello, my name is Bob. Hi, Bob. And I said, Guess what, Bob Waldo? You've taken a little psychedelics, but it's going to wear off. They don't want to know, think of your third eye or, you know, watch your breath. They just want to know <laughs> you've gotten stoned and it's going to wear off. He said, thank you. Thank you. He wanted to know that this situation that he was in was going to wear off. He was very grateful for that. And that was the value of the freakout out tent.
0: Back to Mrs. Gravy.
7: There was a big dome where people with any kind of medical problem happened. And then if their medical problem was that they had perhaps over-enthused themselves into one of the little pills of various colors that were being spread around there, then a very valuable person to send in was someone who was part of the hog farm. And... Uh, I had helped organize the medical tent at the beginning uh, when it was just like they flew in the doctors. We were all already deep into Woodstock. The rain hadn't come yet. A bunch of uh, doctors and nurses got flown in and dropped in the middle right by the, the medical tent where we were all doing the best we could. And then uh, the doctors were all just standing there. And Abby Hoffman walked in and he says, okay. If you're a doctor or nurse, stand over there. If you're a hippie who knows how to deal with psychedelic dis- discomfort, you go there. And, you you know, if you have no um, experience whatsoever, but you're in trouble and you're here because you're sick, you go there. And he started giving orders, and I swear to you, all the doctors and nurses and hippies and everybody just did exactly what he said. It was organized. The hippie people who were helpful and the medical people who were a little nervous about what the hell have we been dropped into the middle. We all made friends and
0: helped each other out. And it was beautiful. Here's Laura Foster Corbin on the freak out tent, where her then husband, original Mary prankster Paul Foster, was instrumental.
1: So Paul Foster, he had definitely hung out with all the acid tests and had taken his fair share of the same and was quite familiar with people who were in other mental zones. So he was particularly adept at dealing with those who were tripping at Woodstock. He was very happy to do it. And then he liked keeping uh, journals and notebooks, sometimes collages, sometimes his drawings. He's pretty famous for his drawing of the acid test poster and the acid test graduation. He liked writing. He had written notes on what he felt were important tips for trippers. Helpful hints if you're dealing with people that are having a hard time out there with what they've just ingested. Paul would help people calm down and know that there was a better day ahead and that things were all right it sounds like advice for somebody going through a covid epidemic actually yeah calm down don't forget to breathe it's gonna be all right the sun's gonna shine another day we'll get through this so laura emailed me paul foster's tips for the woodstock
0: freakout tripper tent handbook there are two pages of tips and you can find this at RainbowValentine.com. here's a few tips what's your name where are you from You just took some acid. Maybe it was poorly manufactured. Try Owlsley's next time. Smoke marijuana with them. Toys and goodies for waiting it out. Sticks of incense. Stocks of fringed grasses. No hot drinks, no caffeine. Coca-Cola and 7-Up. Keep babies and small children away from spaces where there are active or violent trippers. Capital letters, fall in love with them first, and the rest comes easy. Back to Jahanara.
7: And so eventually I spent most of the rest of Woodstock in the freakout tents, working with people who had taken too much psychedelics, helping them get comfortable, and training them to take over, as soon as they were all right, take over the next people that walked in. That's what we did.
4: I'd talk somebody down, then I'd say, hold it, Bob. He was ready to run out and go to rock and roll. I said, no, now you're the doctor. See that sister coming through the door with her toes in her nose? That was you three hours ago. Now you're the doctor, take over. And so his job was to talk her down and then deputize her while he got to go out and play. And so that, that way the scene kept regenerating itself. And it was kind of cool that way.
5: A half an hour after we release anybody from our section, we turn them into doctors and they care for people that were tripping like they were when they came in.
8: Back to Lisa Law. But we didn't have any police either. We had the police corps, which was off-duty police that showed up to help us. A lot of people were helping out with the issues of people tripping or hurting their feet or trip tents were used. To everybody who came into a medical tent was in moves to a trip tent if they were on acid and needed help. And once you got into a trip tent, it was quiet in there. And it was, it was like a womb. So they were helped through their trip, and we told the doctors not to use Thorazine. Thorazine stops you in a trip and never lets you finish the trip, and which can affect you the rest of your life.
4: Every now and then, we would get somebody that was too difficult to talk down. So we would go next door to the doctor tent, and get them to come to our tent and shoot that tripper up with some Thorazine. And that would settle him down and then we could deal with somebody else. You take a little acid, it's gonna wear off. But that's what they want to (laughs) know.
0: Thank you. Back to Johanna.
7: And during that time, several people who were uh, big uh, artists, fancy artists from the stage, found the freak out tent and i particularly remember john sebastian silver what is the name loving spoonful was the name of. It. he was a late a lead singer with the loving spoonful he came and sat outside the freak out tent for a long time and sang to us and god bless him i i consider
0: him a friend of mine for ever he probably has no idea who i am what? John Sebastian is part of the and Spoonful, a band who formed in Greenwich Village in the early 1960s in the same coffee houses as Wavy. And they're best known for their hit, Do You Believe in Magic? Do you
2: believe
4: in magic? John Sebastian was wearing his tie-dye at Woodstock. In fact, uh, he was the first guy to go on. And he opened. And, and he just... Uh, was up there improvising because we couldn't find anybody who was supposed to go on. And so he did it, and it made it into the movie, and it made him into uh, sort of a, a big star. And then, what was this, a, a band called? Can you do that very quickly?
8: Yep, the Love oh, he Spoonful. Love and
0: Spoonful? Spoonful! The Love and Spoonful were one of the first jug bands to go electric, and the Grateful Dead credits seeing the Love and Spoonful in concert with their own decision to go electric. As of this recording, John Sebastian is still alive and playing music and, turns out, is one of the people responsible for introducing hippies to tie-dye.
4: John Sebastian had the first recorded tie-dyes, which he tie-dyed himself. Uh, And uh, everybody learned from a woman named tie dyed Mary. Or was it tie dyed Annie? Something like that. One of those. (laughs) And she taught everybody how to tie-dye. And we even tie-dyed a teepee, which was... (laughs) Not so easy, but it was beautiful because she knew what she was doing.
0: Tie-dye, another counterculture unicorn, is introduced to hippies at Woodstock. Tie-dye, the popular fabric dyed swirling colors worn by hippies, originated in 5th century China. And the earliest surviving fragments are from Peru, circa 500 A.D. There are varieties of the tie-dye craft throughout Asia and Africa, and it came to the U.S. in 1909 when Professor Charles Pello of Columbia University gave a lecture and demonstration of the technique. I went down a bit of a rabbit hole to track down tie-dye Mary or Annie. I reached out to a few hog farmers first. Luckily, Erica Miller, an original hog farmer and the first woman who drove the hog farm bus, confirmed Wavy's recollection. Hello? Of course I know Erica from Camp Winter Rainbow. We exchanged some pleasantries, and I asked her if she remembered Tie-Dye Mary or
1: Tie-Dye Annie. I don't know
9: Tie-Dye Mary. Who's Tie-Dye Mary. When I lived in L.A., we knew an Annie Tie-Dye, who was one of the first to do, I think, Aniline dyes. Since, you know, I don't really know her Uh, Bobby and I were in LA for a brief time and he was one of the very first people I saw in tie-dye pants like I say I think I just met her once Uh, she did brilliant beautiful tie-dyes the stuff that John Sebastian was wearing at Woodstock I believe they were all part of the same group of friends Along with the Fireside Theater, you know, John Sebastian and Annie Tie-Dye. And, I, you know, I can't place her face.
0: Do you have any um, recollections of how it felt the first time you saw Tie-Dye? Were you wowed? What do what you thought?
9: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Everyone wanted it. You know who might know is Oxygen. You should talk to Oxygen.
0: I left a message for Oxygen, and with Erica's new exciting information, did a little detective work on the internet. Now... Wikipedia mentions a company started in 1969 called Water Baby Dye Works, run by a woman named Ann Thomas. And indeed, further detective work revealed an interview in Billboard magazine with John Sebastian of the Loving Spoonful, telling Billboard that Ann Thomas was a capital music executive and taught him to tie-dye. A Time Magazine article from 1970 revealed that Ann Thomas learned tie-dye at the free store in San Francisco run by the Diggers. Remember, we talked about the Diggers and free store in Episode 6. After I figured out that Anne Thomas of Water Baby Dye Works was tie-dye Annie, Oxygen returned my call. Now, Oxygen is the hog farmer who got on the bus by winning the Tiddlywinks contest we discussed in Episode 6. Here's Oxygen on tie-dye Annie. Hello? Hey, is this Oxygen? Yeah. The tiddlywink champion? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's me. <laughs> I'm trying to track down information about Tie-Dye Annie.
6: Right. Um. You know, I only knew her like in 1967. We all live at the farm in, in L.A., Barham Boulevard. And John lived there also. John Sebastian was up there with us for a while. So, yes, it uh, been Tie-Dye Annie's. Thing. She had a little garage there, and, and she was doing it a lot. So I don't know if other people were doing it at that time as well, probably. You know, that's where we all, all got own names, because we were part of the OK family at the time. Her name was Oceana Knox. It was just a joke. Yeah, the Firesign Theater um, guys lived there, and so it was just a, a lot of comedy going on. I mean, she did some wonderful stuff, because I know I had uh, some velvet stuff that she tie-dyed.
0: Wavy says tie-dye Annie taught everybody to do it.
6: Okay, and that could be. And I I don't know what happened to her after that, but I heard from some friends of mine. I think she's died now. I'm not sure.
0: Cheers to trendsetters Tie-Dye Annie and John Sebastian, who brought hippies and tie-dye together, impacting the fashion of a global subculture.
4: And also, I used to hang out a lot with Cass Elliot, and I tie-dyed her cast when she broke her leg, and it was, we were very close.
0: She was wonderful. And, Is that Mama uh, Cass. Yeah, Is Ma- that Mama Cass Mama Cass, yeah. Speaking of Mama Cass, also known as Cass Elliot, it's one big hippie family circle. The Love and Spoonful's first iteration was the Mugwumps and included Denny Doherty and Cass Elliot, who later formed the Mamas and Papas, an iconic nineteen sixties folk rock band, best known for this song. <gasps>
4: later I I got in with what's the other spoonful? I mean not the spoonful. The What's the Cass Elliot uh, group called? The Mamas and Papas. Yeah, them. (laughs) What's the the other Mamas and the Papas? Michelle Phillips! Michelle Phillips. Yes, I became good buddies with her in later years when we were uh, antiques. And we would uh, appear and spew uh, golden odors into the microphones and that's what we were. Golden oldies oldies <laughs> and i'm still guilty as child i am a golden oldie for god's sake
0: mama Cass died of heart failure in 1974 and wavy's friend michelle phillips called the purest voice in pop music became an actress and cannabis advocate Back to the Woodstock Unicorn.
2: The warning that I've received, you may take it with however many grains of salt you wish, that the brown acid that is circulating around us is not specifically too good. Uh, it's suggested that you do stay away from that. Of course, it's your own trip, so be my guest. But please be advised that there is a warning on that one, okay?
0: Here's Mrs. Gravy again. A lot of different people
7: who were on stage, on the big stage, came and serenaded the free tents, And then wavy now and then, Hugh, my husband Hugh, who was not quite yet, almost about to be wavy, came a couple of times and said, okay, you have to leave here and come with me. And he brought me up on stage to see the incredible string band. And I also got to then see Arlo Guthrie. And so I did get to see some of the music, but mostly I got to see the people who came to serenade the Freak
0: That's Arlo Guthrie at Woodstock.
5: Now, people have been saying that some of the acid is poisoned. It's not poisoned. It's just bad acid. It's manufactured poorly. That's young lady. So anybody that thinks they've taken some poison, forget it. And if you feel like experimenting, only take half a tab, okay? Thank you.
0: So Woodstock was a three-day festival before cell phones. How did people stay in touch? Here's Laura Foster Corbin on that detail.
1: There was a like an information booth is what it was called. And Paul had done this whole sign for it that said information and it became plastered with paper plates saying, hey Sam, meet me in the parking lot. Hey Joe, I'm really okay. Hey Katie, I'm okay, I'm somewhere. People lost the people that they had come with and it was pretty hard to locate them in just this dish of people and sleeping bags, and all that kind of stuff.
0: So Wavy and the Hog Farm were in charge of basic human needs at Woodstock. Food, medicine, and information.
1: But well, we were doing a good job. It was, made, you
7: know, when there was crisis, I looked around and I could see who was fixing the crisis. And it was, you know, Wavy Gravy, and it was me, and it was Lisa Law. <laughs> we were wonderful. And we all worked together in such a way to help each other be wonderful. And I'd never really experienced that before.
4: Basic human needs, basic human deeds, doing what comes naturally. Down in the garden, when no one is apart, deep down in the garden, the garden of your heart.
2: They're jet puff, so they stay soft and blend easily into your favorite drinks, desserts,
3: and salads.
0: Miniature marshmallows. So what makes wavy unique among humanitarians activating for basic human needs here on planet Earth? is his total dedication to fun, mirth, and frivolity. Tell me about the marshmallows at Woodstock. Oh my God. Okay, here's the deal. We had
4: all these telephone poles that were brought in to make a lovely playground and there was extra. And I stacked them together in a certain manner that it looked like a Boy Scout campfire. We set it on fire. And then obviously it was a larger than life. It was like a camp version of a campfire. (laughs) It was a camp campfire.
0: By camp campfire, Whitty means huge, large enough for at least 200 people to gather comfortably around.
4: So it demanded for mega marshmallows. First of all, we tried to get a recipe and make them, and that was impossible. So we bought up every marshmallow in 40 or 50 mile radius and proceeded to get them and s- squish them together. So they made, instead of a bag of marshmallows, one marshmallow, which we would stick on a piece of iron and uh, shove it in the fire. Then we would pass it around and everybody would take a little grab off the main marshmallow and until it was devoured. And then we'd uh, cook some more. And I always loved to do that to take things that were small and make them larger than life. Like I love things like giant forks and spoons and what's a regular paper airplane, but make it like 30 feet long. So the marshmallows, yeah, we all cook one up and telling tall tales around the fire, munching fistfuls of marshmallow, which got all over your face up your nose. And <laughs> it was a workout, but it was worth it.
5: You can do a hundred wonderful things with cat
7: miniature marshmallows. Back to Mrs. Gravy. You know, there was an intentional, it's not like you just drop by. <laughs> it was hard to get there. And everybody was very beautiful to each other.
2: Today, wearied but still light of heart, they huddle their masses and set out for home
7: and even when there was a absolutely horribly just thunderous rain with nothing like adequate shelter you know all the police were in this little there was a little makeshift shelter they had put them all up in and we were like letting them know do you want us to bring some granola can we can we help you out in any way <laughs> There was really good good rapport between the police and the doctors and nurses who were all sort of a little bit, they started out feeling kind of scared, I think. And then it became really mutually human beings in a situation where you couldn't easily walk out of there. It was quite remarkable. And when things needed to be done, it was pretty much the hippies that were doing it. The big takeaway for me was that when we are in charge, we do a good job. I had no clue of that before that, Thessaly. I was a little hippie, I knew that I wasn't worth much. And at Woodstock, I got it that if we all work together, we are amazing. I left that experience empowered. You know, not not that I needed to be in charge of everything, but that I was a, a equal, equally competent and my life mattered. Hippies are really something. <laughs>
0: So Woodstock in 1969 marks a major shift in culture. The call for peace, love, and rock and roll is reverberated on the evening news on America's TVs which populate everyone's living room.
2: The Woodstock music and art fair having done its thing quietly folds its tent and steals
0: away. The new music, rock and roll has become standard. And the 1950s fantasy of conformity, carrying a briefcase, working for the man and the nuclear family eating TV dinners has disintegrated.
2: And so, it's all over, except for the massive cleanup job that remains.
0: Wavy and his generation, the psychedelic baby boomers, pave the way for the next generation, Gen X, to embrace and celebrate individuality, originality, and creativity.
2: Till another day, Richard O'Brien, CBS News, White Lake, New York.
0: What happened after Woodstock? Here's Laura
1: Foster Corbin. After Woodstock, the hog farm was also in charge of cleaning up afterwards. And there were more sleeping bags left behind on this hillside than you can imagine. It was many, many trips to the laundromat. What'd you guys do with the sleeping bag? Um, We kept the best ones. Of course. We were poor hippies.
0: Speaking of sleeping bags, remember how Wavy loves baseball? He told us about his baseball bookie business in episode two. Well, after Woodstock, his sleeping bag joined forces with his favorite game.
4: After Woodstock, we came back and had a softball game with another commune down the road. And it was pretty hilarious because there was a third base. You went into a house and went to the upstairs window. And when somebody else got a hit, you would slide down this rope into a barrel of water where you would have to wait until somebody hit a five base hit and they would pick you up and carry you home. And home was our wonderful sleeping bag, which is called home plate. People used to wonder, why is that sleeping bag called home plate? Because it was, yes, quite famous.
0: Wavy Sleeping Bag Home Plate lives at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Museum in the 1960s collection.
4: But it was home plate because that's what it was. And you got set down on the sleeping bag and you were given a cheeseburger and a line of Coke, <laughs> a cola. A Coca-Cola, folks. And a foot rub.
0: Turns out Erica Miller, the first woman to drive the Hog Farm bus who I chatted with about Tie-Dye Annie, won the great post-Woodstock baseball game.
9: We were all on acid, as I recall. and I placed first on the great baseball game.
4: <laughs> and I can't remember anything else. The mind goes cloudy and does cartwheels. Could we have the next slide, please?
0: In the next episode, Wavy produces a party with a plethora of poultry.
4: Actually, it was 50 turkeys under strobe lights.
0: And Hollywood attempts to recreate Woodstock, but this time on wheels.
4: Called Medicine Ball Caravan. Did I tell you about Alice Cooper?
0: Rolling Wavy and the hog farm overseas.
4: Yes, there we were in Turkey and we just, we actually kept going.
0: Stay tuned for episode eight, when Wavy and the Hog Farm meet Pink Floyd. American Prankster is executive produced by Rainbow Valentine Studios, Eric Hober, Larry and Gertrude Brilliant, God and Company, Thessaly Lerner, Rainbow Valentine, and Wavy Gravy, and sponsored by Levy Informatics at levyinformatics.com. Episode seven, written, edited, produced, and scored by Thessaly Lerner, with original music by Will Collins, Hope for a Golden Summer, The Ukulele Noodle McDoodle, and Gabby Lala. Mixed and mastered by Brian Slusher, narrated by Rainbow Valentine. Associate producers are Sage Leem, Ryan Reeves, Trina Calderon, Zappo Dickinson, Jundid Sykes, Johanna Romney, and Mark Margolis. Logo by Jordan Pesano. Special thanks to Episode 7 guests, Dennis McNally, Johanna Romney, Laura Foster Corbin, Lisa Law, Erica Miller, Jean Nichols, and appreciation to all the do Rainy budget donors, our partners at Pantheon Podcasts, and you, our listeners, and the incomparable Wavy Gravy. For more info, go to wavygravy.net and rainbowvalentine.com. Raise a glass to the downfall of evil and towards the fun. <laughs>